0: This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg and welcome to episode 23 of Inside COVID-19. Episode A window into what it's going to be like coming into the office post lockdown. We'll revisit the Oxford University professor who promised a coronavirus vaccine this year and has human trials starting tomorrow. We'll talk to a London oil trader who explains why virus impacted crude oil traded at minus $40 a barrel earlier in the week. And we share a model for how parents can pull together to help internet-deprived school kids keep up. Plus, reasons why the U.S.'s COVID-19 infection plateau may well have been reached. Inside COVID-19, from Biz News. First in the COVID-19 headlines today, Well, the big news comes from the U.K., where its government is spending £40 million in backing two university teams who are developing a vaccine for the coronavirus? Last month, BizNews interviewed Professor Adrian Hill, who's director of the Jenner Institute at Oxford University, and he told us the popular view that a vaccine would take 18 months to develop was flawed. Professor Hill's group, which has worked on Ebola for some years and starts human vaccination tests tomorrow on COVID-19, is one of two recipients of the UK government funding. Imperial College of London. Is the other. More on that story later in this episode. The American mortality toll has picked up again after peaking at over four and a half thousand last Thursday, with 2,751 deaths on Tuesday, taking the total to over 45,000 who've died from COVID-19, by far the highest of any single country. Confusion, though, is being thrown into the data analysis with the emergence of newly reported deaths in California that apparently occurred almost two weeks before the previous official mortality. This supports expert opinion, including that from Stanford University, which suggests the lack of testing and differing reporting standards is masking the extent of the contagion in America and exaggerating the apparent death ratio. Johns Hopkins University's Coronavirus Resource Center puts the confirmed COVID-19 tests worldwide at now just over 2.6 million with more than 180,000 deaths. South Africa's confirmed cases Tuesday were 3,465 and this from 127,000 tests that have now been done. 58 South Africans have lost their lives to the virus. After a bizarre trading session where the U.S.'s benchmark WTI oil price traded at minus $40 a barrel, crude oil returned to a semblance of sanity today with the Brent crude price, that's the one that South Africa focuses on, up 7% to $20 a barrel. Brent fell briefly to $16.50 in early trade Wednesday. More on the oil story in this episode, including an explanation for the craziness of the past few days from a London-based global trader. Inside
1: COVID-19, from Biz News
0: the lockdown in South Africa has brought new challenges, particularly to big corporations that have to keep the wheels rolling. Many companies have been struggling with this. Uh, one company that seems to have got it right is Discovery Health, whose chief operating officer Karen Sanderson joins us now. Karen, just leading up to the lockdown, did you have any idea that this was going to happen, and indeed being able to prepare for it?
2: You know, in the lead up to the lockdown, I think there was a lot of ambiguity, and I suppose that's you know paramount in any uh, unfolding situation but we were very much you know in the same position as many where we didn't know the absolute you know rules of the game that would lie ahead and so yeah we had to spend quite a lot of time doing multiple scenarios and we built out a number of scenarios ahead of time just to Kind of be in some sort of position once it was clear what the government was or wasn't going to do, um, that you know we'd be easily able to f- kind of flick a switch and and go with the right scenario. Um, Because uh, in our business, uh, you know, it takes quite a lot of um, setup and logistics in order to move people around and move technology around or change technology setups. um, And you need a bit of lead time for that kind of stuff to happen. So so we did. We spent a lot of time building multiple scenarios ahead ahead of the final decisions.
0: It is a health crisis and you are the dominant health insurer in the country. You presumably also had the challenge of dealing with higher volumes.
2: Yeah, you know, I think in the lead up to the lockdown, um, you know, there was a lot of anxiety, I think, in the minds of our customers, uh, by and large, really, you know, for around, you know, they had their access to health services, services, their access to medicines. And, and all of that did create an increased amount of activity and, and really what we call service load um, towards our business and um you know that all died down quite substantially post the lockdown you know with many people no longer being in their normal environments or going about their business in their normal day um we have noted a significant decline in the um the service load that comes through our business at at the moment so so presently we see about a 50% reduction in load across various services but um there are some services who've actually spiked you know above uh, abnormal Levels and those tend to be the services that require support for medicines or, you know, in the social media spheres and so on. So, uh, a lot of uh, interesting outcomes post lockdown.
0: How many people did you have to send home?
2: Well, the Discovery Health um, team is made up of, uh, or the health operations team is made up of about three and a half thousand people. And we are a distributed team. uh, We run out of five different offices across South Africa in in different provinces. And um, we've always actually had a work from home policy at Discovery. So um, we've always had about 500 people on our team who've been working from home across the country. And that's been more of a, um, you know, just an employee value proposition model that we've always had in place and. Um the, the point of that model is that it's been pretty much an aspirational model, you know, something that we we give to top performers and, and people aspire to, to earn that uh, privilege or that flexibility, I suppose. So for the longest time, we've actually had that kind of capability in place. Um, and we really saw ourselves just in a position where we had to scale that up rapidly in a very short space of time. And we've uh, subsequently sent just under 900 more people to work from home. So at the moment, we have just over 50% of our health operations team who are now working from home. Those that remain in the office are largely there because of technology limitations, so um where it's simply just not feasible to to send um, the certain roles home, and those are largely our call centre type roles.
0: I've seen a few call centres. Usually people are in cubicles sitting next to each other, packed into a, a room answering phones, and presumably with social distancing, you've had to make some adjustments there.
2: Yes, yeah, so much work went into just reconfiguring the, the, you know, very pragmatic things like the office layouts or, um, you know, the shifts or the timing of how many people to have in any given space. I mean, we even have gone so far as to, you know, Woolworths and and the, the retail outlets led by putting those little stickers on the ground that help people stand at the right distance to each other. So all of those types of things you have to think about, you know, when it comes to your canteens and the places where people tend to, you know, Create groupings and so on in the course of, of any given business day. Um, but in addition to all of that, uh, we, you know, we've, we've spaced everyone out by moving a the, the, the significant portion of the total discovery staff out of the uh, offices nationwide. You create enough space to ha- have that social spatial distancing and to maintain it over time. But you also have to bring in quite a number of new services to maintain the health and safety of the people in the office, and so you know everything from uh, healthcare workers that need to do temperature scanning screenings regularly throughout the day. So uh, they do it up to three times per person per day. Um, you know, to making sure that hand sanitizers are available and and all of those uh, typical rules that we all know about. Um, but in the beginning stages, we didn't all know about them, and it wasn't natural and normal. And people really did have to go through quite a lot of change, I think, to adjust to the new world of work in the office, just as much as they might have been adjusting to. A new world of work at home.
0: So, in the canteen, do they have to sit at different tables?
2: Um, well, really, what we try and do with the canteen, we don't. We don't try and dictate to people exactly what they need to do but people do need to keep a safe distance from each other so um the canteens are, are really free-flowing areas you kind of grab and go um, and then we have you know the way our offices are laid out we have various large spaces what we call pause areas across the buildings where people can all distribute and go and um, you know have a meal or have a break um Etc. So there's certainly enough space, and with half the staff complement out of the out of the buildings, um, that makes it even even more easy, I suppose.
0: And masks.
2: Yes, masks, gloves. You know, when you arrive at the discovery office in the morning to start your day, you no longer just walk in, greet your mates, and, and then you know get on with your with your job. You really have to, um, you know, approach the scanners who then first scan you and take your temperature. Then you get issued with um, gloves every, uh, for every day of the week. We issue everyone with masks. Um, they they get two masks a week um, to use. So so this stuff is constant, and everyone has to cl- pick up that and. And then only make their way across to their workstations um, with all the, you know, pragmatic limitations around only so many people in the lift at any given one time and, and so on. So it has created a few interesting new rules that we're all adjusting to, but um, but we're doing a good job of it. I, I've been really pleased with how people have internalized the changes and, and really taken them seriously.
0: Karen, this is fascinating because this is maybe a window into the new normal for many other companies who aren 't essential workers at the moment but will in future be please God, going back uh in in May to the office space uh, so it's there's quite a lot of adjustment that's going to be required.
2: There, there really is, and we were, um, you know, we hold, even to this day, we still hold daily, what we call daily, um, DR ops, disaster management ops planning meetings. And it's where we try and discuss every single detail. But for for example, at this moment in time, we're discussing return to work once lockdown ends, and you know how we're going to need to just orientate the people that haven't been in the office about what it's like to be in the office these days and how much that's changed. It's almost like a customer journey, but for our own teammates that we that we need to carry out. So we're building toolkits and um, information guides, and we're we setting up webinars and showcasing. You know, things to people in fun and exciting ways, just so that when people arrive, you know, that the, the, the your ten, natural tendency is to, to do as you always did. And, you know, simply walking up to somebody, sitting on the desk next to them to ask them a credit. you just can't do those things anymore. You have to be spatially divided. And so it's even these minutiae details that matter and that, that you do need to pen down and make a formal You know, toolkit or rule book or guide. And then we're trying to just make it fun, you know, the way we translate that to people.
0: This is uh, perhaps a template for government as well. Have you been able to share this or I I am aware that you, the, the executives at Discovery are involved, very involved with government on, on fighting this virus. But is this kind of an approach also going to be worked into the post lockdown reality?
2: it certainly is um and you know i must give uh, government kudos they have uh you know been issuing very clear and very um deliberate guidelines uh, for the office settings of essential services that are operating presently um and you know they they've been pretty they, they've been not just good in in getting them out but they've been really good in managing them they've arrived in our offices on multiple occasions already you know uh, various um, authorities have arrived to inspect us to, to check that we are meeting all those regulatory requirements and, and so on. And, yes, they might have picked up some tips from us, but many of the things that we're implementing are already government guidelines for companies that continue to operate as essential services. So something definitely for other companies to need to do their homework on and get, you know, get busy with.
0: I got a WhatsApp a few moments ago from my GP, Jenny, uh, Sherry Fanaroff, and she was today at Discovery, I think, or not, maybe not with you, but watching a presentation that you put on with uh, Professor Karim, uh, yes. who does appear to have uh, have the whole country's uh, support at the moment. Uh, has he helped in, in advising and guiding? He does seem to be on top of things.
2: We've been very fortunate, you know, in, in, in discovery because I think in the industry we're in and, and the work we do, we have access to these, um, you know, extraordinary people and and their great um, you know thought leadership and we've been using that uh, not just to our advantage for our own teams but you know for our customers and 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 as publicly as possible as well so um yes uh, many many thought leaders including today P- professor karim but so many others um, who constantly um, are are brought into the fold to help us you know conceive understand um, scenario plan and just and just keep on making changes that suit the new future. You know, we just we we've got to be very adaptable and flexible, and we've got to be finding all the information out as soon as possible so that we can keep making changes to suit the new the new future.
0: It's a fascinating story, and a, a as I mentioned earlier, a, a window into the new world. How are people taking it mentally though? The the psychological impact of not being able to stand around the water cooler or the uh, the coffee kettle.
2: It's, it's so difficult to just do basic things in the beginning, like break the habits of, of just walking up to people, shaking a hand or even hugging a friend, you know, and, um, and I think in the beginning stages, we all kept messing that up, if I can put it that way. Um, you know, and I say the beginning stages prior to lockdown even, um, when that was kind of urged. And, um, we quickly made good fun of all of that. So, you know, we all do foot taps and elbow taps and all of those types of things. Um, and and we try and keep each other honest about it so kind of like if you spot somebody doing something wrong sneezing incorrect even in our even in our virtual world now where we have so many virtual meetings if we notice somebody touching their face or uh, you know coughing as as unexpectedly etc everyone's always uh, keeping everyone honest and, and pointing out how that could have been done better so I think just creating heightened awareness about it and constantly being on everyone's case about it uh, really does matter. But uh, you know, doing it in a in an open and fun way because it is it is um, it is uh, it is pushing our cultures. You know, it is it is making cultural differences that don't come naturally, and um, and people need to do it very very deliberately in order to make the change.
1: Inside COVID-19 from Biz news
0: in the worldwide race to develop a COVID-19 vaccine, the UK government has announced it is funding the Oxford University team which will start human trials of the vaccine tomorrow. If successful, the vaccine will be made available to the rest of the world at reasonable prices. is Linda von Tilburg has been on the story from the get-go. Here's her update.
3: The only way to curb the spread of COVID-19 available to governments are confinement and social distancing measures, that is until a vaccine or treatments for it can be developed. Currently, it's estimated that 80 companies and academic institutions are racing to produce a vaccine and trials that normally take years and sometimes even a decade have been speeded up to try to find some way of halting the spread. There are a couple of unlikely candidates added to the vaccine race including british american tobacco the genetic material of covid 19 was shared by the chinese government in january this year which enabled research groups from around the world to start with research but the outlook for the development of a vaccine was estimated to be between 18 months and two years which provided a grim prospect as the virus swept from the east in Wuhan, where it sprang up, across Europe to the US, to the United States, and later to Africa and South America. While a vaccine looked so far off, companies have started experimenting using drugs that are presently used for other diseases, including malaria and tuberculosis. President Donald Trump backed hydroxychloroquine, the anti-malaria drug, But in a recent study, doctors examined patient outcomes for U.S. military veterans and compared that to patients who did not receive the treatment and found that there was overall no benefit. There were actually more deaths among patients treated with hydroxychloroquine alone. There are other drugs normally used to treat cancers and other viral diseases, including HIV-AIDS, that are being trialed in several countries. But at the end of march oxford university's jenner institute announced that they were enrolling the first volunteers for a vaccine that they have developed i spoke to the head of the institute professor adrian hill at the time who explained that thousands of brits have volunteered for the oxford trials
4: we've been overwhelmed thousands of people have expressed interest and i think that just reflects what we know that uh, there's a real desire out there to help design a vaccine and make a vaccine available for lots of reasons. Obviously, to prevent disease and death from this dreadful virus, but also to let a much larger number of people out of being locked in or locked down or whatever you want to call it. It's really the exit strategy for this pandemic.
3: What is difference about your trial and your vaccine?
4: Yeah, there there are lots of people trying to make vaccines. And of course, the problem is that generally it takes many years to design, test a vaccine, bring it into clinical trials, go through various phases and eventually get it licensed for use. And we in Oxford have experience of this uh, being done much faster than usual when we were helping out with the Ebola emergency back in 2014, we tested four of the Ebola vaccines that went to Africa, one of which was tested successfully there. Now that was easier than this because those Ebola vaccines existed. They simply hadn't been tested clinically. So we moved very rapidly into clinical trials. This time at Oxford University, we have had to make a vaccine from scratch, uh, which started in the middle of January when the sequence of the DNA or the genome of the virus was was released. And it's quite remarkable to have it manufactured roundabout about now and ready to go into the clinic. So this has been uh, extraordinarily fast. It's luckily a vaccine type we know a lot about. It's been in clinical trials for lots of other diseases. So we know that it looks safe. We have to show that for COVID as well, but we should be able to do that fairly quickly.
3: This week Oxford announced that they will be giving the vaccine to their first trial group from Thursday this week and as they were busy with the trials they were not allowing further media interviews. They referred Biz News to an interview on the BBC with another scientist at the Jenner Institute, Professor Sarah Gilbert who said they were starting on healthy people in the group from 18 to 55 and she believed the prospects of a vaccine were good. We're looking at the safety of the vaccine as we go. We have used this type of vaccine many times before, so we're not expecting any surprises with this. Inside COVID 19, News.
0: Justice Van Espe is based in London. Nice to be hitching up with you today because of your knowledge and insights into the oil market, which the rest of us are completely confused about. How long have you been exposed to this sector? Uh, I
5: think I've been in the energy markets for the past 30 years so lifetime
0: have you seen anything like we've witnessed in the past week
5: no i think you know what we've seen happening in, and i would hasten to add uh, what is happening to wti if that's what you're referring to is pretty unique but it is also relatively isolated have we seen vast movements in the price of oil uh, in the past 30 years absolutely you know we've seen events that drive volatility of this nature before but this is obviously somewhat Unique and somewhat unusual because of the COVID 19 situation.
0: WTI, what's that stand for?
5: So, West Texas Intermediate, basically a a contract with reference to which most US crudes, many other international crudes, maybe too, are traded. WTI is priced at Cushing in Oklahoma, which is an agglomeration and storage point for crude oil that is produced in the US. In particular, WTI for immediate delivery or very prompt delivery uh, in May. Which in which we've seen the unprecedented negative pricing that uh, you may be referring to.
0: Which the media has been focusing its attention on. Here in South Africa, we uh, price uh, through Brent crude. What's the difference between that and WTI?
3: Uh,
5: Brent crude is, again, a reflection of North Sea oil production. Again, nowadays, a combination of several uh, North Sea oils that are being produced. And so I would say probably still the majority of internationally traded crude is traded with reference to Brent. There is another crude oil marker, Dubai or Oman and Dubai, which a lot of the refineries in Asia would price with reference to. But Brent is also used for sales into the U.S. or sales to Asia. And, of course, South Africa uh, would purchase a lot of its oil on a Brent-related formula.
0: Is there any difference in the two prices at the
1: moment?
5: Yes. The WTI, until a few years ago, before the U.S. omitted the export of U.S.-produced molecules, was very much a local affair. So the pricing of crudes produced within the US or certainly in Canada and the US. price with reference to WTI, but of course, given that in the past two or three years we've seen this huge change to the oil markets in which US molecules of oil have headed for export markets. Of course WTI now is a reference also of internationally traded crude.
0: So what's the story with a minus fourteen dollars a barrel? Oh <laughs> South Africans are saying, but hang on, uh, I'm going to go to the petrol station and fill my car up with petrol and they're going to give me money to leave.
5: Yeah, well, you know, uh, dream on. I think, by the way, it wasn't minus 13, it was minus 37 at one point or minus 40 even was achieved. But this is a little bit of a unique situation where in the United States, the WTI futures contract converges with physical delivery at Cushing in Oklahoma. And the may contract for WTI was due to expire today or yesterday. And a few of the players who'd held length of WTI and who were not in the physical market held on a little too long and didn't unwind their contract, you know, as might've been prudent, particularly in this market a few days earlier or a week earlier. And ultimately the only way they could get out of these contracts was to pay somebody to take it off their hands. So, it does reflect that oil production has continued the pace in the U.S., although it's lower. Storage is filling up, and, of course, in the immediate future, i.e. for May delivery, this has become quite acute. But once this, let's say, technical issue of a few people who got caught long with the oil was resolved, the contract bounced back into positive territory. So there was between the day in which the minus 37 was hit and the following day, there was a $48 a barrel reversal to territory of plus 10 or 11 of course, still low by historical standards. I wouldn't say that we're heading for long-term negative crude oil prices, because ultimately people who produce the stuff are not going to continue paying, or they are not paying anybody to take the oil off their hands.
0: Thanks for explaining that, Justice. But uh, the whole COVID-19 impact on the global economy is being reflected, no doubt, in the oil price. As you've just explained, it's low by historical standards. Is this just because the world is locked Down And when it comes back to normality, oil will rise again. Or is it uh, a reflection that people are concerned about the global economy actually bouncing back anytime
5: soon? Well, firstly, COVID-19 is the major demand destruction factor. I mean, you know, international to find that more or less convergence of shutdowns, of course, as COVID-19 has expanded, um, we've seen unprecedented demand destruction. Uh, there was, as you will note from OPEC or OPEC Plus meetings in the uh, months prior to that, um, you know there has been concern about marginally too much oil production hitting the market, and attempts were made by the Saudis and the Russians primarily to try and, and curtail production to some extent and hold the markets in balance. But between, uh, I would say, February and then particularly March and then into April. The biggest factor was a coordinated shutdown across most of the globe's economies. And, you know, you've seen gasoline demand down by 40 to 50 percent, and that has to go somewhere. Uh, Crude production or inputs into into refineries down by 20 percent. And that is already telling you that if crude being absorbed into refineries is is, um, down by less than the demand on the other side, of course, all of that product and crude has to go somewhere. Uh, But if you look at the forward market prices for oil, Then you'll see that, uh, whereas, say, let's take Brent, which was priced last night for June uh, delivery at around $20 a barrel, July would be $24, uh, August uh, $27. So you can see that the market is anticipating in the shape of the forward oil prices that there will be some recovery at some point in time. My prediction is that if we have to make one, there has to be some return to normality. Um, But it's going to take a while because, you know, one thing we haven't addressed is oil in storage. With the quite unprecedented demand destruction which COVID-19 has wrought, this oil has to go somewhere. And so oil storage facilities globally uh, are filling up. In South Africa, in Saldana Bay, there is the the storage facilities that uh, are owned by SFF, uh, which will no doubt be full at around 42 million barrels. There are other storage facilities there that are new, probably another seven or so. So it's probably 50 million barrels in South Africa. And then in the U.S., you have oil inventories heading over 500 million barrels for crude oil, almost 300 million barrels for gasoline. So to dissipate that stored inventory globally, and then you talk about Singapore, you talk about strategic petroleum reserves in India, China, Japan, everywhere. People are also seeing this as an opportunity to acquire oil inventory at lower prices. So it's going to take a while to absorb the the oil that has that's been in in um put into storage as a flip side for very low prompt oil prices on the other hand we've seen the price of freight for oil increase so you know you you whereas you find that oil prices are in a very prompt time frame are low and in the future high shipping prices are quite the reverse because of course uh, a 2 million barrel ship is a form of movable storage and so uh, people with nowhere to go have uh, are uh now storing oil in chips, which means that ships are occupied holding oil. And therefore, you know, the cost of shipping has increased dramatically. So current oil, uh, current pricing of shipping is dramatically higher than the future price of shipping. So quite the reverse of the oil market because of this need to go somewhere with all the oil. So adding all that up together, um, you're going to have to have quite a return of demand to absorb all this oil. And, you know, I'm not an economist, but uh, if you look at what's happening to small businesses and uh, what's happening to various economies, there isn't going to there isn't going to be a quick bounce back of economies, and therefore you'd also expect oil demand to to uh, come back at a slower pace. Therefore, all this inventory is going to take a while to absorb. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News.
1: Inside COVID-19 from Biz News.
0: It's really good to see people stepping up to help the South African effort during the COVID 19 crisis. Among them, Alan Knott Craig, who's well known to members of the Biz News community through his contributions from time to time, which are always, Alan, I must say, have you know, very well read because you take a glass half full approach to life, generally speaking. Uh, But we're going to talk here about Project Diseaseware, your philanthropic operation that you've been involved in. In fact, if if memory recalls, you took time off to establish this.
1: Yeah, well, I wouldn't say I took time off. I was kicked out of my company and I was forcefully unemployed. So um, in 2013, we started an NGO called Project Diseaseware, and the idea was to figure out ways to bring effectively free internet into poor communities across South Africa. We started with a project we did in Pretoria called the Twani Free Wi-Fi Project. And since then, the guys did projects for IPPs across the country, for coal mines like Glencore uh, and Pumalanga. And recently, we've uh, done a, quite a cool project in, in Stellenbosch where we facilitate free Wi-Fi or at least for free home internet for, for children who go to school so that they can keep up with um, the academic classes whilst the lockdown continues.
0: In your day job, though, you,
1: the chairman of HeroTel, your new business, uh, how's it going on that side? Yeah, we're quite lucky. I think, um, internet is more needed than ever. So our, our demand is still strong and we haven't seen a problem with uh, bad debt just yet. Uh, although we do have quite a big customer presence in, in northern Mpumalanga around the Kruger Park. So a lot of our customers are luxury lodgers and guys, they are struggling a bit. So we've had to come to the party and help them with discounts. But in general, you know, if ever there was a demand for Internet, it's now. And uh, this kind of forced telecommute that's happening around the country for almost every industry is going to further prop up our industry. And it also
0: requires people who are underprivileged uh, to find new ways of accessing the Internet as well. And, and hence the reason why we're talking today. Uh, Project Isisware is doing some fascinating stuff in this area. You sent me uh, a, a, video which uh, was quite moving, I must, uh, I must tell you. Um, but what exactly is Project Isiswe up to?
1: Yeah, yeah, Project Isiswe at the moment, um, it's, it's major project is working with a school called Rhenish Primary. It's a government school in Stellenbosch. The headmaster is Gary Skills. And he asked that, um, he asked me whether we could assist with getting internet into the home for children living in Kayamandi so the the families in um, Kaya Mani don't necessarily have enough money to have home, home internet. The school had to start again even though the lockdown started, but all children are doing online learning lessons and you know if you can't get on the internet at home, you're literally getting left behind. It doesn't just apply to Rhenish; it's just a small example of a national problem where the academic year is going to be threatened for millions of children if they don't that uh, they can't afford internet access at home. So it sees where effectively what it does is it just solves the the technical problem um we we worked with Vodacom. um there's a voter shop in George funny enough that had a lot of three uh, g modems and we and we we bought them up and uh, we activate them and we have them delivered in person to the to families and we load them with airtime remotely and the airtime and modems get sponsored by you know the more well off um, families within Rhenish, as well as the school itself and corporates. And then I guess that's what the uh, CSW is pretty good at, like creating a model that can be replicated across other schools and hopefully come up with a fairer system. It's certainly not a long term solution for internet access. It's a very expensive solution in the short term, but at least it is a solution for as long as the lockdown lasts.
0: And the parents you say have come together, the wealthier parents helping the the not so well
1: off. Yeah. I mean you don't have to be a rocket scientist to live in South Africa and realize some people are less fortunate than others. And I find that more, most of the Africans, if they're in a position to help, they want to help. They just don't know how to necessarily. And SISWARE is the organization that helps you if your specific angle would be to get people on the internet and, and make sure the digital divide isn't even further west. You know, SISWARE makes it easier for, for both companies and individuals that want to make a difference. So other schools could do this as well? Yeah, absolutely. There's already two more schools in Stellenbosch that have copied it. Um, and any school can do it. They go register on the projectisware.org website. And they basically facilitate the whole process. You know, you, I mean how do you how can you be sure that you you're necessarily giving internet to a family with children at school rather than some teenagers that just want to, you know, go on YouTube. So the school facilitates it, makes sure the families are legitimate and that the they've been trained, etc., and educated and around making sure that the Wi Fi password isn't shared too much. And then once that's taken care of the kind of issues where it makes sure that the, the technology is installed properly.
0: How much are the parents in
1: for? Um, just to start with, it's uh, 940 bucks. So that includes a a modem and airtime for one gig. We found that one gig gets you about three or four days. So, you know, I mean, it depends on the child, but I guess you could get away with uh, two or three gigs a week. And that equates to um, probably an extra 200 bucks a week. So, you know, if the lockdown lasts uh, three or four weeks, you're probably in for one four, And then the child at least doesn't fall too far behind. Of course, you have to manage it. If the whole family gets the wifi password, then that data goes very quickly.
0: Have uh, families then stood up and sponsored one other family or are they trying to do more than one? What's the typical take up?
1: Well, in the case of Renish, there were 15 families. So we just found 15, uh, 15 sponsors and it wasn't necessarily one, one, you know, you know, you just 15 times 940 rand and get the money together. And then, of course, you still have to do the airtime recharge. So effectively what the principal and the school does, is just sends an email out to the parents saying, anybody who would like to contribute towards connectivity at home for underprivileged kids, just send an email here and, and you know, you can put money into the pot and the school manages that pot.
0: You've got kind of to wonder what happens at other schools that have now sent their kids home and are giving remote lessons uh, via the internet. What happens if you coming from a community where you simply don't have it?
1: Well, yeah. I guess there are three kinds of schools. You get a, a really high end private school where there are no children without home internet. You've got these kind of former model C schools, which I guess is a bit like Rhenish, where you've got haves and have nots. And I think Rhenish is a great example of how within the school, they're trying to solve that problem by, by getting, you know, um, you know, you know well off parents trying to help out the less fortunate. And then you get the schools, probably the majority of schools where really the majority of parents don't have internet at home. And then that problem, I guess, would have to be solved by matching kind of more wealthy schools are, I guess, like bishops or, or big corporates that understand that there's this massive academic discrepancy and digital divide and getting them to kind of contribute towards, you know, a school, say, in Butterworth. Just to, yeah. You because know, if we don't do that, this finance, this academic year is going to be a disaster for millions of children. And, and you know, if you're a well off kid, you're going to get through the year. And if you're not, you're either going to be passed without the fundamentals or you're going to fail the year.
0: Are you close to this industry? There was a promise in the state of the nation by the president that there will be an iPad in the hand of every child. Has anything happened there?
1: No. Well, I don't know. Um, I haven't seen any iPads being handed out. But, but weirdly enough, uh, you know, in this exact uh, uh, project, we didn't find that anybody needed a smart device. You know, every, a recent research shows that your average household in South Africa has access to at least five smart devices. So there's no real need to distribute hardware and, and you know go to all the expense of getting iPads into everybody's hands. Um, it would be great if everyone had an iPad, but if you've just got a Huawei or a, or a Samsung kind of tablet or, or smartphone, you're still going to be able to do all the stuff online. What, what stops people from getting on the internet is not access to devices. It's the cost of internet. There is definitely internet access in all the towns and all the schools in South Africa. The problem is it costs too much. If you can't subsidize that cost via like a scheme like Project Decisor is doing, then the children simply can't get on the internet. Inside COVID-19. From News.
0: The curve of COVID-19 infections in the United States appears to be reaching a plateau, prompting pressure from the White House on governors to reboot state economies and relax health guidelines. But there's so much conflicting evidence that even the experts get confused. Professor Josh Sharfstein from Johns Hopkins University explains why healthcare workers that are quite young are dying from the disease.
6: What we have seen recently in the United States is a plateau. And that is good news because we clearly were worried about having so many people with severe disease from COVID that it would overwhelm the healthcare system. And there's no question that the healthcare system in several places, such as New York City, has been pushed really up to mm-hmm. the brink, but there's just been an amazing uh, medical response and extra beds and ventilators and staff coming in, and it looks like the line there is, is more or less um, holding, and these hospitals are not getting a bump So that is a very good news. However, it does not mean that, you know, it's all over. It means that really the long-term battle is beginning, and um, it's very important that not only the current restrictions continue long enough for cases to really begin to decline, but also that we right. have a strategy for slowly reopening mm-hmm. the economy. I had a family member over the weekend, uh, Professor Scharfstein, who took in the information of a nurse of about age forty dying, why are nurses dying? Why are doctors dying? Well, this has been seen all around the world, including in China and Italy and Spain and um, it may have to do with the fact that uh, they were exposed to a very large amount of virus, perhaps uh, before you know it was uh, known that there was coronavirus in their area or when they were um, uh, unable to get adequate protective equipment and uh, the amount of virus someone's exposed to generally can influence how well people can fight off the infection. So that's one possible reason uh, why. The other reason is that there's a certain randomness to this virus. Um, there are people in the community who seem um, completely Uh, at low risk based on what we know, but nonetheless, they get seriously ill or even die. So, you know, this is not a guaranteed harmless infection for
3: anyone. Could this be genetic? I know there are a number of studies, um, Josh, about whether you have a a pre-genetic disposition for for the virus to get worse.
6: It's possible. I haven't seen any, like, uh, compelling data specifying which, you know, genes. Sometimes there are variations in the immune system. That can predict vulnerabilities to infection so you know i think that uh, would be very um, interesting if if it's uncovered
3: i know you were saying that we need to be vigilant against a new surge of cases as we start to lift restrictions what would be the right way to do this
6: so i think there are two things and there's a, been a couple of very good reports that um have been put out including by the Johns hopkins center for health security Um, And the first thing is you have to think about what are the conditions for reopening? What do you want to have in place before we reopen? And the second thing is how do you go about it? And in that first category, what do you want to have in place? Adequate testing, which we don't really yet have, to really be able to test people who are sick, even mildly ill, um, as well as enough testing for high-risk places like nursing homes. You certainly want to see cases declining substantially for 14 days. Um, you want to, You need the public health capacity to respond to positive cases, and you need to make sure that that healthcare system that's been pushed to the brink in some areas has really bounced back, so that you're able, if things go get worse, to handle the, the challenge. And then you got to think about how you're going to open up, and it's not going to be flipping the switch back on; it's going to be slowly turning the dial. And you need to really think through um, what comes first, what comes second, what comes third, and then between each stage, waiting to make sure that you're not sparking a surge in cases. And, you know, um, there's some things that may be able to come first, like if there are workplaces where people don't sit anywhere near each other. But then there are things that are going to come later, like a big indoor concert that may come the latest of all. So you really need to be thoughtful about that. I think you're starting to see in the United States framework. Yep. have uh, been discussed by governors, um, and I think that will be the roadmap map that people follow.
0: This has been episode 23 of Inside COVID-19. Access every episode by subscribing on Spotify or iTunes or by downloading the Biz News podcast app in the Apple App Store. I'm Alec Hogg, and for tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID 19 was made possible by Discovery.